1: of the coast of North America than uh, many other mariners at the time. In fact, that's why he uh, Moat was one of the kind of go-to people when the war did break out, uh, because he was so experienced with, uh, with the coast.
0: That's Charles Lagerbaum. He's an Antarctic explorer, underwater archaeologist, revolutionary war historian, and he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode is brought to you by Henry Holt and Company, publishers of the new book, The British Are Coming, The War for America, Lexington to Princeton, by Rick Atkinson, available now. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. On today's episode, we're going to be joined by longtime Journal of the American Revolution contributor, Charles Lagerbaum, discussing the HMS Albany. Now... One of the unique things about our guest today, uh, unlike some of the other guests we've had, of course, he's well-versed in archival research, right? We all are. Uh, But he also specializes in underwater archaeology. And this is something, as uh, revolutionary historians, you don't hear a lot of. Uh, I am fascinated by the topic of underwater archaeology. I think it's one of those sort of uh, final frontiers of American revolutionary studies, Because most of the ships and the naval battles that we've discussed uh, in our field have some remnants at the bottom of the sea. I mean, when a cannonball is shot and it sinks into the ocean, it doesn't disappear, it's still there. Uh, Charles Lagerbaum today will talk about some of his experiences uh, not only studying the HMS Albany and ships like it in archival research, but also Uh, strapping on the gear and diving into the water. Now, I'll be very frank with you. Uh, When I initially began my conversation with him, uh, it took me a while not to sort of, you know, uh, freak out, because that's something I thought would have been so great, so adventurous, you know, so cool, uh, putting on the respirators and the air tanks and seeing this history up close and personal. Uh, But then, as you'll hear in the interview, Charles began talking about some of the inherent dangers associated with such a dive. Uh, things like water temperature, changing tides, visibility, uh, of course we all know of the, the horrifying creatures and monsters that live under the waves, under the sea. And by the end of the interview, you can probably hear this, I was went from being a pretty enthusiastic uh, supporter of what he was doing, uh, to someone who was eh, probably a little more comfortable in the archives. I mean, I can probably live without, you know, the fear of the great white shark or the giant squid or being swept away from my family and friends uh, because I'm going to see a shipwreck. Uh, Charles is great. You know, he begins his story in Antarctica. Imagine that, by the way. Uh, if you begin your story in Antarctica... I always ask my guests, what what made you interested in this topic? And his story begins, well, I I spent a few years living in Antarctica. Uh, You know, it's really, it's all downhill from there. What's what's diving a few shipwrecks, right? So this is a great interview. I'm really excited about it. These are the kind of people that contribute to the Journal of the American Revolution. Uh, And I know I say this a lot, and I don't mean to uh, repeat myself often, if you've heard the show already, but if you have a topic that you're interested in, uh, and you think it's worthy of a true blue historical study, a, a real analysis, submit it. Send it in. Uh, the worst editors can say is no, and the best news is that you get published, and who knows, maybe been, you'll even you be in the guest chair on dispatches in the future. Uh, you don't have to be an Antarctic explorer. You don't have to dive shipwrecks. Uh, but hey, people do, and you never know. So with that said... I'll stay here, nice and warm and dry in my library, shushing all the people that are carrying on, playing on their cell phones, uh, while people like Charles Lagerbaum, our guest, dives to the ocean's depths to give us all a little more perspective on the American Revolutionary period. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Charles Lagerbaum. Charles Lagerbaum, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. Tell us about your background.
1: Well, I got my uh, bachelor's in history at Kansas State University, and then I went up to the University of Maine where I got my master's in history and archaeology. And as I was uh, finishing up my master's degree, I also got my teacher certification. So I've been uh, a public school teacher at Belfast Area High School for the last 26 years, and that's enabled me to uh, also uh, branch out and do a lot of uh, historical research and writing on my own.
0: Uh, What first drew your interest into this topic?
1: Well, um, when I was at the University of Maine working on my master's, I lived down the hallway from a uh, glacial geologist who uh, um, took uh, field seasons down to uh, Antarctica, and they talked me into going for a season because I was uh, finishing up, I had finished my coursework and I was just writing my thesis. And not many students um, could be gone between uh, the months of October and April. It kind of took a chunk out of both semesters. Uh, So I agreed to go, uh, and the experience transformed my life. I I was uh, very excited uh, to be part of such a team. We went into the dry valleys, 2% of the continent, not covered by snow or ice. So I ended up going back for a second season, fell in love with the history of Antarctic exploration, published a book on uh, one of the early explorers who died alongside Captain Scott in their race to the South Pole in 1912, and that kind of opened up the door back here in Maine when I decided to go on for a Ph.D. program at the university. When I did that, um, you know, we were talking about topics and so forth, and my interest has always been connecting Maine with these other regions. At first it was the polar regions, but now it's more like just connecting Maine with the maritime world in general. And that's where I kind of uh, um, started writing up a bunch of these topics. And every time I mentioned it to people, fellow researchers, neighbors, whatever, it, it always seemed like I shook the tree and a few more things would fall out. They would be like, you need to talk to the neighbor of my cousin. They had a great grandfather who went whaling back in the 1800s. And it was just little tidbits like that that I would uh, continually try to um, you know, pursue. And I accumulated it all into my uh, uh, what would have been my dissertation. I ended up not finishing up uh, the degree. I did the coursework and most of the dissertation. But for various reasons, um, I ended up with just this Big pile of research. And so about five, ten years ago, my wife kind of suggested I do something with all the files and stuff in the, uh, in the file cabinet. and uh, uh, I started pawing through it, and I said, well, there's a lot of great material here." So I just started uh, you know getting articles published about all these different topics. One of them happened to be uh, the Albany, which really combined my interest in Maine maritime history but also my uh, colonial archaeology background, because I had done my master's thesis on a Revolutionary War trading post. It was excavated up on the uh, Penobscot River uh, just above Bangor. So one, one thing kind of just led to another, and uh, that's how suddenly I found myself elbow deep in the history of Henry Mowat and uh, the uh, Penobscot expedition.
0: Could you talk about the origins of the HMS Albany? Well,
1: that's a good question because that's one of the the, uh, thinner areas of my research is its origin. There are a couple different suggested possibilities of where the vessel came from or where it was built. Uh, We do know that Henry Mowat uh, saw it at one point, possibly in the harbor of Boston, and recommended that uh, such a suitable vessel be good for Royal Navy service as either a uh, I don't know if he envisioned it as a warship, but definitely as a, a vessel to be used by the Navy. So he recommended the purchase of it. And, uh, uh, the Royal Navy authorities agreed. The problem was it was sold or it was up for sale right at the time. The British started to evacuate Boston. Uh, so, uh, uh, around the St. Patrick's day there of, uh, of, uh, 1776. So it, uh, probably left with uh, many of the people who left Boston and British and ended up over in Halifax Harbor. And that's where the British went through with the purchase, and it became part of the the Royal Navy at that time. And so Mowat was, uh, I think, deeply disappointed when uh, he was posted to it. I mean, he knew it was a suitable vessel, but I don't think he considered it for him. (laughs) And so that's why he, uh, uh, you know, started to refer to it as wretched, as Uh, Not so much the the condition of the vessel itself, but the fact that he was kind of, you know, uh, uh, tagged as that person for that ship, um, especially with the lack of advancement of his career.
0: Talk a little bit about the career of the Albany. What was it like? What did it entail? Uh,
1: We do know that it was a, uh, uh, they chased uh, smugglers, uh, they chased uh, privateers, uh, they, they did some soundings, uh, hydrographic work along the coast. Uh, but mostly it was, uh, like convoy duty. Uh, it, it would ferry, uh, troops perhaps, or, uh, uh, it, it was like a workhorse, uh, uh, for the Navy, which I think wasn't as, oh, glorious, I guess, is what Mo had envisioned, uh, a command for himself, especially after, you know, he had done, uh, uh, Ye- yeoman service with it in the uh, Penobscot expedition. Um, I mean, he-, he practically, you know, defended by sea the, uh, the uh, Massachusetts uh, attack uh, with some very good uh, naval tactics and so forth using what little he had. Um, but I think he, he envisions greater things for himself, but they never materialized, mostly because of the tinge of the, uh, the burning of Falmouth uh, earlier in the war.
0: Your article features prominently a man named Henry Moat. Uh, tell us about him.
1: Yeah, he was a uh, um, came from a Royal Navy family. His father was a captain, and when he uh, uh, joined the Royal Navy in the uh, uh, late 1750s, he came on over to North America, and he basically served in North America right up until his death in the 1790s. I mean, uh, um, this guy, uh, you know, came over as a as a young uh, officer uh, got on board the, uh, a ship called the Canso and eventually helped with the, uh, uh, the Holland survey of this uh, area um, he probably knew more of the coast of North America than uh, many other mariners at the time the Canso did uh, hydrographic survey for, for nearly 15 years um, in fact that's why he uh, Moat was one of the kind of go to people when the war did break out uh, because he was so experienced with uh, with the coast. But he also knew uh, the the Americans and he knew that once the British occupied Castine that uh, it would not be too long before uh, some of the Americans came to uh, uh, counter that, uh, that occupation.
0: What were some of the highlights of Mowat's career? What made him famous?
1: Yeah, um, when uh, the... Penobscot expedition, uh, you know, the, uh, and by Penobscot expedition, we need to be careful because I mean, that was the Massachusetts response to the British coming over. Uh, they always referred to it as the Bagaduce expedition when they came over from uh, Halifax and occupied, the uh, Castine, which is kind of in the, the heart of the Penobscot Bay controlling access to the Penobscot river. When they occupied that area, uh, Henry Moate was in charge of the naval flotilla that brought the troops over and the engineers to build the fort, Port uh, George, and uh, uh, he retained control of the three uh, sloops of war that were left there after the British transports uh, returned. Uh, so he was there with his three ships: the, the Albany, uh, the North, and the Nautilus, and. They uh, basically provided the naval defense of Castine when the Massachusetts Navy, properly called the Penobscot Expedition, uh, showed up to try to retake the, uh, the territory. So Moet um, used the ships to great effect uh, and uh, defended the approaches. The American commander uh, 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 Dudley Saltinstall, you know, uh, knew that it was a a very difficult uh, place to uh, um, bring his uh, ships into. In fact, his famous quote is, you know, I'm not going to hazard my ships into this blank hole. Uh, you know, he was very uh, uh, cognizant of the fact that uh, this was uh, pretty well defended. And uh, Moet did uh, a great job with that. He uh, seconded many of his men to help out on the fort defenses on the land. He uh, uh, spared what cannon he could um, for shore defenses, and he used to great effect uh, the three ships. He put them on a cable so that there was, in effect, if an American ship came in, they had to face the broadside of three different vessels at once, I mean. And he strategically moved the ships back closer to Castine uh, during the final days of the defense. Uh, luckily, they ran the clock out, and uh, Sir Admiral Collier's uh, uh, ships uh, came in in relief, basically trapped the uh, Massachusetts uh, fleet there, and the American vessels all fled upriver. Uh, Nineteen transports beached themselves on uh, uh, Sandy Hook, which is uh, just below the Narrows, uh, before the Penobscot River Narrows. And uh, uh, most of the warships went past them, and then they all burned themselves, and the crews then uh, went into the woods on the uh, west side of the Penobscot River and pretty much walked back to Boston a uh, pretty uh, ignominious end for uh, this, uh, this Massachusetts attempt. Uh, but but Moet, you would think, would get uh, some pretty good credit for that. But for reasons, again, perhaps attached to uh, him burning a falmet, or perhaps he was a uh, just a, a prickly kind of character through the years, um, he did not get the honor of taking the news of the victory back to London. Uh, You know, Collier dispatched him to go upriver to salvage some cannon at the time and sent word back with a a junior officer. And you see instances like that throughout most of Moet's career where he's either overlooked or bypassed or a younger officer kind of gets the nod ahead of him. And I believe it's uh, a lot of it has to do with uh, uh, his uh, actions at the, the burning of Falmouth, Maine, which. From the information that I've seen and the research I've done on that, uh he basically played it by the book uh, uh when he was told to uh, uh you know bombard the town uh he actually uh you know gave the townspeople extra time
0: to remove
1: uh their belongings and to remove themselves uh, and uh and so. Whether he was the the, the black-hearted figure that many Maine historians kind of attribute to him or not, you know, there's uh, some more research to be done on that. But uh, very interesting career. He stayed upon the the North American station for the rest of his career. He did get some more commands, but nothing very illustrious. He was very discouraged through his later years, uh, and he ended up uh, dying on board a Royal Navy ship in the 1790s off the coast of Virginia which is where he was buried.
0: Mowant famously describes the Albany as wretched. Uh, why did he say that, and what do you think he meant by it?
1: Right. He wanted something a little more spacious, uh, uh, a little bit larger. Uh, the the, the sloop-sized vessels, not all that big. Uh, the, uh, uh, it, they carried a, a complement of uh, uh, 120 men, but still... Um, you know, there were much bigger ships of the line uh, that he kind of thought he uh, he deserved. Uh, the quarters were cramped. I mean, it, it was a working vessel. Uh, you know, it had seen a, a lot of years of service. And as a result, it was, you know, just not one of the fancier postings. And uh, once he kind of got it, um, assigned it, it was almost like it was Velcro and he he couldn't quite you know, remove himself from it for a lot of different reasons. But the, the conditions of the ship, um, yeah, it, it was a, a fairly elder older vessel. Um, conditions, you know, were not as, uh, as great as on the, uh, better ships of the line or bigger ships.
0: Talk about the end of the HMS Albany. How does this story finish?
1: Well, that's very interesting. Uh, since that article came out in the uh, Journal for the American Revolution, uh, I had a couple people approach me about the, uh, uh, the possibility that Moa may have even been the commander when she wrecked. But she ended her, the war years basically transferring uh, POWs, prisoners of war from, uh, American prisoners of war, from Halifax to Boston, and then bringing uh, British prisoners of war back to Halifax. Uh, so 1781, 82, 83, when the war is starting to wind down, the prisoner exchanges uh, really began in earnest. And uh, uh, the Albany was used mostly for that. Uh, so in December of 1782, she had dropped off uh, uh, many American prisoners of war in Boston and then headed back to Halifax, uh, perhaps uh, with a first stop at Castine in Penobscot Bay, which was still controlled by the British at that point. Uh, It was in December, and December in the Gulf of Maine is uh, uh, not a particularly nice place. Weather can come up suddenly, and in a storm, a a snowstorm, uh, she wrecked on some rocks uh, called the Northern Triangles in what is uh, called Two Bush Channel, which is kind of a passageway that most ships took, when they were entering the heart of Penobscot Bay. So it, it would be the approach to Casteen, uh, but it's a navigational hazard and they hit it uh, and uh, tore the bottom out of the ship and it went down very quickly. Um, the, the men were able to uh, uh, pile into a couple boats, uh, one a pinnace, which uh, Moet was able to, uh, uh, you know, command. Uh, they went back to Castine. Uh, The other boat uh, actually got lost in the blinding snow uh, and tried to make for Matinicus Island, which is uh, uh, a little island just about uh, uh, four or five miles from the Northern Triangle. And uh, during that boat journey, as they're rowing over there, uh, three of the men uh, uh, died from exposure, uh, froze to death. And so when they landed on a, a little beach on Matinicus Island, That beach, uh, for many years afterwards, was referred to as Dead Man's Beach uh, because of the the three guys there. And my understanding is that they are still buried there, uh, or were buried there, and that the the graves can can still be seen. So one of my goals is to eventually get out there to confirm that uh, one way or another. So they lost three of those men, but the the others were uh, fed by the uh, Matinicus Islanders and eventually uh, returned uh, to the mainland. Um, and, uh, so the, the ship kind of had a, uh, you know, a, a very sad ending, uh, which pretty much went unnoticed, uh, um, because it had kind of been written off the books by that point. Uh, there were probably not going to be too many more, uh, prisoner of war passages, uh, because of this, uh, uh, because of the condition of the ship. So, uh, when she did wreck, that uh, you know basically spelled the end for the Albany.
0: Charles, this is really a first for our show, but you actually do a lot of work uh, underwater—that is to say, underwater archaeology. Uh, could you talk about some of the unique challenges associated with that sort of environment?
1: Yeah, um, there are remnants still there. Uh, the uh, Albany is a diveable wreck, uh, but by wreck, uh, there are just maybe a few pieces there problem is that uh, some other ships have gone down in the area there, too. Uh, a former uh, a Confederate raider by uh, uh, the CSS Georgia actually wrecked on the same rocks about 100 years later. Um, but uh, uh, so there are some pieces left to it. Uh, for years, there was always talk among the, uh, the scuba divers uh, locally that uh, there were cannon available or at least uh, to be seen especially at low tide. At low tide, the waters are uh, right off the rocks are probably 30 to 40 feet deep. Um, and so, uh, you know, you can see, you do have to dive it at slack tide. Uh, so the tides make it very tough. The uh, water conditions in Maine, visibility is not all that great. It's certainly not the, the tropics or the Caribbean or anything like that. Um, but there, there are down there, there, there are remains there. Now for the Penobscot Expedition, uh, that's more river uh, up towards Bangor, uh, and the river itself uh, has uh, heavy ice flows during the, the winter time, and as a result, you know, many of that ice uh, uh, scrapes out uh, many of the remains. So while there, there may be some more pieces up there uh, along the uh, Pnobscot River, they would probably be less than what we see at the, uh, the site of the Albany. Although one of the American ships called the Defense was excavated in the 1980s uh, by uh, underwater archaeologist Dr. Warren uh, Reese and uh, uh, he reported that uh, you know uh, there were still uh, pretty decent remains of the vessel itself. Many of the pieces, uh, a lot of uh, the uh, the metal uh, so easily located by magnetometer in, uh, in Stockton Harbor. But uh, uh, yeah it's a challenge uh, definitely uh, the what you see underwater it's not like uh you might be able to find a uh, you know the bell with the name on it or things like that so more times uh your research is really in the uh the paperwork section of uh of libraries and records and and things like that
0: would you be willing to share any stories about some of the wrecks that you've dove
1: yeah uh, one of the, the there's a, a shipwreck called the uh, the pendleton uh, located in steel harbor on islesboro which is about 12 miles uh, from Belfast, where I live. And uh, uh, it's, it's in about 30 feet of water. Uh, but again, visibility is fairly difficult. Uh, it's, uh, uh, the, the tide, you know, make it a challenge. You've got to be uh, very cognizant of that. Anything out along the islands uh, can be very challenging, uh, just getting there. Uh, you know, the, uh, the accessibility, you know, can be pretty difficult. Uh, but it's pretty exciting uh, once you do, you know, come down upon something like that. And, uh, you know, it, it is uh, definitely uh, hands on history.
0: Charles Lagerbaum, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia.